Welcome to the 18th episode of the Known Pleasures podcast. This is Patrick, Mark and Graham discussing the music of the new wave slash post-punk era from the late 70s and early 80s. If you'd like to hear the songs featured in this podcast, click on the link and it will take you to a Spotify playlist created just for this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and also send us a message as we always love to hear from our listeners. And now I think it's my turn to introduce today's band. I had no idea what a mod was. I didn't know about Lambretta scooters, Chelsea boots, US Army parkers, suits with narrow lapels, or even cashmere jumpers. So when I first laid eyes on the jam, I was confused. Where's the spiky hair, the ripped t-shirts, the leather jackets, the bondage trousers and safety pins? Who was this well-dressed trio in Union Jacks playing music like The Who on speed? The first two albums went past me like a blur as merely part of the tapestry of punk albums that define the times. But after that, with each successive album, they became one of my favourite bands. I fell hard for Paul Weller's incisive songwriting and knack for melody, Bruce Foxton's driving bass lines and iconic harmony vocals, and Rick Buckler's beat that he just had to surrender to. Today we will discuss their six studio albums, from when they were absolute beginners, all the way to their final parting gift to the world. Seeing the jam say farewell was easily the bitterest pill I've ever had to swallow. <laughs> so the fall of the Gough Whitlam government didn't do it for you? <laughs> no, 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 that's right. So leaving that aside, um, I guess we'd start in uh, Woking. In Surrey in England. Yes, the town that spawned the band, 40 kilometres southwest of London, and H.G. Uh, Wells, the author, was from that neck of the woods, or he certainly wrote War of the Worlds. Mm. Uh, it was set in Woking, parts of it. The Martians invaded the outskirts of yeah, Woking. They invaded Woking before London. <laughs> yeah. They wanted to get some practice in. Yeah. <laughs> you don't want to start big. No, start with some small town, then move up to the city. Yeah. Is that exactly. like trying out a production off-Broadway before, mm, yeah, yeah, before going a, to the main stage? Yeah, okay. yeah that's right. So they, they invaded Woking and it's still celebrated the invasion of Woking by the Martians by a sculpture in the middle of Woking of, remember the Jeff Wayne soundtrack album, mm-hmm. War of the Worlds? Yes. And the weird kind of thing on a tripod, yep. like a spaceship on a tripod on the cover. Well, there's a kind of a reproduction of that as a sculpture in the middle of Woking. Oh, wow. These days. But surely the chances of anything coming from Mars are a million to one. <laughs> are a million to one, aren't they? Yeah. they but still. <laughs> Fair enough, as long as they've celebrated it. This is where Woking kind of fits into the kind of firmament, which is, as, as you say, Graham, off-Broadway, smallish place, about 60,000 people, and a little bit isolated, not as isolated as your Swindons, where the likes of XTC came from. But, yeah, this is where the lads from the jam met at a spectacularly young age. Two of them anyway. Not not all three met straight away today. Yeah. No. No, because the two of them were born in 55 and Paul Weller was 58. Mm, yeah, that's so right. He was, yeah. he was a couple of years behind. They were at Shearwater Secondary School where Rick Parfitt from Status Quo also went to okay. Shearwater And they Secondary say nothing School. happens in these towns. <laughs> that's right, <laughs> yes. And not only that, but the Spice Girls started their career yeah. in working. Wow. So speaking of post-punk... <laughs> <laughs> But uh, the only other um, bit of information I've got about Woking was that the writer Douglas Adams uh, described Woking in one of his books as standing in the kitchen wondering what you came in here for. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty good. Which I loved. (laughs) So it was uh, at this point, Paul Weller, Steve Brooks and Rick Buckley. Are we starting from there? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Steve Brooks was a school friend of Paul Weller. They advertised for a drummer and found Rick Buckler, who was a couple of years older than them. We recently watched a documentary on the jam that featured Steve and Paul at the beginning playing an old song called Slow Down. Now, I think it was on one of the early Beatles albums and um, it's interesting to hear them play it as you kind of got an insight into how they probably would have played it in the early days compared to how they played it on the first album because if you, if you ever hear the, the version on the album on the first album it's like 100 miles per hour Paul Will is sort of really spitting out the, the vocals as they did back then but yeah this was obviously two guys who just liked R&B and soul and stuff like that I've only seen photos of them from that era and it's pretty instructive about the sound <laughs> I think 
Lots yeah. of flares and wide lapels yeah, yeah. and long hair and, you know, there, there was none of the mod look or the punk look that, no, no. that was even a precursor or any of that. Yeah, I don't know any of the music, but the look of them certainly tells me something about them. They did form the three core members of the band, did meet not long after. What year are we talking about here? It was 72, 73-ish. Right. So Paul would have been quite young. Yeah, yeah, he was um, 14, 14. 14, 14 I think, maybe, and they started doing gigs when they were 14 or 15 years old. Managed by... His dad, Paul's dad. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Rick Buckler, their drummer, joined shortly afterwards. And Bruce Foxton, the bass player, he... Well, he was originally player. a guitarist, mm, though, wasn't yeah. he? He swapped to bass. Yeah, yeah. and then uh, Steve Brooks. There's a bit of a power struggle between Paul and uh, Steve Brooks, as he's off in the way with 14-year-olds. <laughs> 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 and wanted to steer it towards the Beatles and Paul wanted to steer it more towards the Who, sort of 1965 mod sort of thing. And as Steve Brooks says these days, he said, we could still be doing working men's clubs if he'd stayed with me. (laughs) (laughs) Still making a living. Yeah, which is a nicely self-deprecating kind of line from the Pete Best of the jam. (laughs) Well, yeah, I guess he is that, isn't he? After Steve Brooks left... Paul had been playing bass. Can't quite remember how White panned out, but Bruce Foxen, who was the second guitarist, mm. then mutated into the bass player and Paul became the guitarist. And that Bruce was the, th- the three-band lineup. And that was a great move. I think Bruce Foxen is a wonderful bass player. Yeah. And I don't know whether he just became great just because they threw a bass at him. he had to be. <laughs> he he kind of had to be because obviously he was quite a capable guitarist as well. And they, I guess, honed their sound an increasingly mod-slash-punk way, inspired particularly by the early Who stuff. Yeah, he said he heard the first Who album, which was My Generation. Yeah, their first album, yeah. Yeah, it did. Everything changed for him. Like, he loved the sound, he loved the look. Mm. He became a, a full-on mod at that point. They were another band influenced by Dr. Feelgood. Yeah, it's like the Stranglers. It's weird, on our podcast, these bands either saw the New York Dolls or they saw Dr. Feelgood and thought, this is how music should sound. And I've got a feeling Paul Weller saw Dr. Feelgood in Guildford, where oh, the really? Stranglers saw Dr. Feelgood. Maybe the same gig. Could have been, yeah. <laughs> yeah, except that, of course, Paul would have been a third of the age of yes. the drummer of the Stranglers. <laughs> well, there's also the story that Paul... Paul saw the Sex Pistols in 76. He went to London to sort of see what was going on and saw them play and came back, you know, the usual thing saying, this is what we need to be doing. Paul was young. He was the same age as these people. So he would have seen punk and seen Mm. it as something new and exciting. He saw a kindred spirit, I guess, with these people. Mm. Whereas uh, people who are a bit older were probably a bit more cynical towards Mm. the whole movement. Well, they actually supported the Sex Pistols in July 76, which is pretty early on. But from what I remember, they were still playing covers and they still had long hair. They might have had possibly a piano player with them. Yeah. It was it was a bit ropey, the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. But they were obviously trying to attach themselves to something that was happening that they thought maybe might work for them. All well, the energy and the youth of mm. it. And Paul Weller always talks about, I felt like this was music for me in my generation. I hadn't felt that before. Yeah, I yeah. felt that was nothing for me. Yeah. Mm. So he, uh, he identified with it, that's for sure. I mean, yeah. And probably dragged the other two along, I'd say. <laughs> Yeah, but they all seem to latch on to it. Well, I mean, he's the leader of the band. I mean, he's going to decide the direction he wrote the songs and I think they were happy just to be playing Mm. whatever they were playing. I mean, as you say, it was really like a bit of The Who or whatever, but you can hear the 60s influences Mm. in the music far more than you can in other bands. It's it's like the, when I hear those first two albums, which we're not going to talk about yet, but they sound like the Clash playing 60s kind mm. of influence stuff. Mm. His vocal style and what he's singing about. Yeah. Speed well, it that's up. what I was saying. They had his style yeah. and then all of a sudden they saw this movement happening and it just looked like they picked up the tempo and mm. got a little bit more yeah, aggressive. Yeah, just doubled mm. the speed and kind of a bit more aggressive in the vocals and, yeah. and mm. you know, and songs about in the city and, and all the rest of it. In early 1977, they were signed by Polydor by Chris Parry. Yes, the Chris Parry, who we've mentioned before, New Zealand guy who worked for um, Polydor and yeah. he went on to sign The Cure, was At it? that point, Weller was 18 years old, so he was absolutely, you know, the, the kind of key demographic. Mm. He was really a punk idol that a casting director would have chosen mm. in that he was good-looking but not in a classic pretty boy Matt Goss kind of way. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> or Luke Goss, for that matter. Either of the guys from Bros. <laughs> He, he didn't look like either of them. No, no, no. He had just an effortless authenticity about him, a kind of an anger, a bit of an outsider thing, mm. but not in a scary Johnny Rotten kind of way. Yeah. Uh, well, he appealed, there was a quote I saw that he, the band appealed to people who weren't punks. 
I think yeah, his yeah. image and the way he was appealed to people that didn't didn't maybe identify with the Sex Pistols and the Clash and their whole kind of year zero approach to music. They allowed for there to be music before 1976, yeah. which which all of these other bands pretended nothing existed prior to that, yeah, and they had yeah. no influences and they didn't mm. like anything. The Jam obviously weren't doing that. They were quite happy to celebrate their influences as well. So. Well, everything you read about them when you read interviews or reviews of their early gigs says they're a revival band and I felt like I was transported back in time to 1965. There was a few scathing reviews of them Mm. in those early days of 76 and 77. I should say, do you know where they got the name from, The Jam? Because it's a pretty nondescript name, right? Yeah. Because they were using that name from the start. They didn't, like, change it to something to fit in. It was always kind of their name, pretty much. Do you have a hilarious anecdote? It's not hilarious. It's just the wall. It may or may not be true, but apparently Paul's sister suggested it and said, well, it's like, you know, other 60s bands like Marmalade or Bread or whatever. Why don't you just call yourself The (laughs) Jam? (laughs) And if it's not true, it should be. Wow. Yeah, so I'm going to go with that. Not too many bands have been named by sisters of band members. Um, ACDC were. (laughs) Uh, Margaret, I think, of uh, Margaret Young, I think, said she maybe looked at it like a vacuum cleaner or something. That's right. And I said, you know what, lads? With a Scottish accent, though, not the accent that I just... (laughs) Anyway... But we, we digress. So. We do. But I just wanted, wanted to throw that in there. Yeah. That, but um, a lot about them wasn't really part of the punk scene. I think that's what we're all agreeing with. Mm. They, they mm. sort of looked a bit right, sort of not. The music wasn't really, but sort of was. Yeah. But yeah. They, they fit in. I mean, you know, um, like I said, supporting the Sex Pistols, you don't get much better than that. They played all of those sorts of gigs in the same venues in London, started coming up to London and getting more and more shows. Um, the Saints, Australia's very own Saints, played with them. Oh, really? In July 77. Right, okay. So, um, you know, they were part of that world yeah, pretty yeah, yeah. pretty much immediately, I suppose. Well, um, when you see them perform live at the time, you can see how young kids would be into it, hmm. even if they didn't sort of fit, you know, they were wearing suits and things. But I think it was a bit more open then, you know, like we talk about hmm. the Stranglers. They didn't fit either. You've got, like I said, a guy with a moustache. Yeah. You know, yeah. like things were a bit more open-minded in those first couple of years before punk coalesced into this, this is what it is and this is what yeah, it isn't. Yeah. People were kind of a bit more welcoming. Anything that was fast and loud was probably welcome. Mm. And then it became, well, no, you don't have the right shoes or yeah, you don't yeah. have the right haircut. Or One of the things about the Stranglers, I guess, an obvious reference point in a way in that they were from the same part of, well, they were based in the same part And they were outsiders. Part of London, yeah, too. and they were kind of pioneers in terms of an album or two mm. being released in 1977. The Stranglers were always just like a square peg in a round hole because their credibility was always in question mm. from day one, whereas an 18-year-old singer of this three-piece band, mm. you'd have to try pretty hard to blow it from that point of view. It was shown in their kind of early albums, the first two albums in particular, that they could really pull that off. Well, the first two albums that we're talking about them, I suppose, were released in the same year, exactly the same as as the Stranglers had done. Well, I think the single In The City was released first on the 29th of April. Uh, it was in April, yeah. I don't yeah. know exactly when. 1977. <laughs> mm, and the album was released three weeks later. Yeah. In May. So everything checks out there? <laughs> everything. everything <laughs> we're all we're good with that. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's an interesting song in the city. It's a real guitar thrash thing, but their bass plays the riff. Yeah, which is Bruce Foxton already being prominent. And it is the same riff from the Sex Pistols' Holidays in the Sun. Also, Paul Weller got into a bit of a ruck with um, Sid Vicious about stealing that riff oh, really? later on. Yeah. Though I don't believe Sid Vicious would have written it. No, Since no. he could barely play the bass, it would have been Steve Jones, the yeah. guitarist who took it. But The Holidays in the Sun was, a, was I think, the last single off the album, yeah, so it yeah. was released quite late. October 77, yeah, I think, so Holidays it's quite, in the Sun. I think The Jam were first. I think they were, no, yeah. definitely. And I mean, it is... Almost the same. I mean, mm. when you hear it, uh, you yeah. go, that's the riff from Holidays in the Sun. You can definitely call yourself punk pioneers if you can accuse the Sex Pistols of ripping them off. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Uh, and, and getting into a ruck with Sid Vicious. <laughs> it doesn't get any more credible than that. First album produced by Vic Coppersmith Heaven, who had done some other things with some kind of prog rock bands mm. and stuff. I think another kind of old English producer. I don't really know. I think he may have been a Polydor House producer or something. And mm. he would later produce... 
turning Japanese for the by vapors. The vapors. Oh. Well, that's interesting because weren't they discovered by Bruce Foxton? There was some connection with the I think there was, a, there was a connection between the vapors and the I think they shared the same haircut. I think that was why he liked them. <laughs> that kind of spiky on top mullet at the back style. Yeah, yeah, Bruce right. never really let go of that it one. It was a bit mullety, wasn't it? He loved that haircut, yeah. 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 Um, what, do, what do we think of the first album? Not made number 20 in the UK. I think it was perfect for what they needed mm. to do. Like the, as you say, the 60s influences still shone through. Very much so. Batman theme that had a, ba- yeah. a bit of a 60s feel yeah. to well, it. Well, they, they liked their covers, didn't they? Mm. They weren't yeah. shy of putting a 60s cover on an album. Batman. I mean, it's, it's kind of likable. Yeah, it's likable. There you go. In the City is a great track. Sounds from the Street is great. I didn't yeah. mind when you're young. Yeah, um, you know, I, I think it was perfectly serviceable. Sounds from the Street reminds me a lot of Nirvana at times. I don't know if you. Okay. The harmonies, maybe, or the, the melody. The songwriting's pretty simplistic and pretty basic. I tend to um, be a little bit easy on him here because, like, some of his lyrics aren't that great. But I got to remind myself that he was only eighteen yeah, at this point, yeah, that's you know. Right. So it's uh, and the songs might have been written when he was fourteen. Yeah, mm. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, so you got to be a little bit easy on him. Yeah, um, like away from the numbers. kind of flirting with melody and pop song construct mm. at that point. And that Time for Truth, Bruce Foxton's harmonies, I think, really make that song. But they are quite intelligent lyrics as well. They're not throwaway. You know, he's, he's certainly trying to do something. They're not rhyming cliches or mm. anything oh, along those lines. So knowing the kind of poetry that I wrote when I was 18... <laughs> <laughs> Oh boy, have I got a story for you later, you're going to love this. I'm quite prepared to uh, make allowances, I bet you do. I bet you, I do. You, you and poetry and post-punk bands, I know there's... Poetry, that's that's my thing. Yes. Um, the non-album single, which was a trend then, all around the world. Which came out in July that year, I suppose. So we're knocking them out fast. It's like we've got an extra song here. Yeah, yeah, Let's that's put right. put that out as well, which continued the theme of songs with the word world in them <laughs> or city. Yes, would, yes. Paul's two big words. And it got to number 13, which is pretty impressive. That's not bad, is it? Then they thought they'd release an album called This Is The Modern World just to continue the world the theme. The world theme. And that was, what, November, so, you know, less than six months. Mm. or so later. In previous podcasts, I told you about how a friend of mine uh, put together a punk cassette for me. Mm. Uh, this Is The Modern World was the first song on that cassette. I always remember that, so I, I got to hear this song quite a lot. So you think he was trying to tell you something? This is a modern world. That this was the modern this world. This was the modern world, yeah. Stop, right. stop listening to Steely Dan. This is the modern world. This album seems to get slagged off a lot. It does, mm. even by them. Yeah, as mm. in it was a bit rushed and a little bit ill-conceived. They just didn't have any more songs. They, they basically had the leftover mm. songs from the previous album, I suppose. I don't mind it. I mean, no, some of it's no. actually quite good. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's just, like I said, I lumped those two albums together. They, they released the same year. Mm. It's the same. Could have been a double album and yeah, done with it. That would have been <laughs> but good. But punk bands didn't release <laughs> double albums. No, I mean no. ELO were busy doing that. With that's right, uh, you yeah, know, yeah. That, that was okay for them. Actually, they were following the world theme as well. That's right. A new world record. A new world record. Yes. I wonder who inspired who. Oh, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, that there's a. It didn't do very well either, did it? it um, no, Twenty two. Twenty two. So down a couple of places. Yeah, yeah. And as you say, I mean, even the band did, didn't like it. That they much. weren't huge Absolutely. fans. Absolutely. Paul Weller just. Described it as patchy to say the least. Yeah. That was his retrospective analysis. But he did have an explanation for why it didn't chart as well as it could have. In Paul's mind, anyway, the Smurfs and the Wombles both released records at that time at Christmas, more or less, to compete with that. You can't compete with that. And as he said, you know, bad marketing, really. You're, you're never going to beat the Smurfs and the Wombles with your, with your jams. <laughs> but the so, kind of following those guys had. Well, that's right. So fair play, Paul. I mean, They yeah. cannibalised each other's sales, probably. That's right. Avoid <laughs> competing with cartoons, Smurfs, yeah, <laughs> whatever right. they are, those things are. Yeah, yeah. Um, and another non-album single around that time as well, News of the World. Yeah. Well, News of the World became the theme song for Mock the Week. The 
yeah. should have been for News of the World. English t- TV show. Uh, one of those sort of comedy yeah. news television shows. But, but interestingly, uh, Bruce Foxton um, did the lead vocal. Yeah, did he, he write the he song? Wrote, he wrote, wrote yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is stra- a strange thing to do for a band early in their career. Yeah. Well, apparently Paul wasn't writing a great deal around this time. By his own admission, he, he had a girlfriend and he, he, had was, a girlfriend, uh, yeah. he was spending a lot of time with her. Have you seen the video for that song? News of the World? Yeah. yeah. Oh, sorry. Uh, yes. yes, I have. On the roof of Battersea Power Station. It struck me as interesting that the previous year, Pink Floyd had had their album cover for Animals featuring that power station. And oh, I just okay. wondered whether it was some kind of parody or some sort of... Same. I think it was just, you know, authentic and street, mm. as was as was the fashion at the yeah. time. But it was an interesting juxtaposition from the kind of arty Floyd album cover to the jam being kind of in the shadow of the towers of... Mm. The power station. I guess we'll never know. No. If only if only they were still alive for us to ask. <laughs> just before we leave this as the modern world, I just wanted to say that I thought Life from a Window was a great song. Life from a window. I'm just taking in a few. thought that that was the starting point for Paul Weller starting to write classic songs or, or at least kind of observational it. stuff yeah yeah and I much preferred that kind of stuff to the anti-Thatcher stuff he wound up doing later on well we should we should speak about that because the early interviews that they did the band kind of portrayed themselves as pro-Thatcher and um, pro-conservative yeah they, so just they, just yeah. to be difficult yeah or... they, they, they literally said we're voting conservative mm. at the next election mm-hmm. so, well, when know, did Thatcher get disguised. in 78 Se- 79 I think, I think Thatcher got in yeah. mm. which would have been a fairly controversial if I'm thing wrong Graham you can you can edit it out with maybe <laughs> your voice saying <laughs> just, 78 just say 78 79 okay, 80 78 78 78 <laughs> 77 we know it was one of those years yes. 90 1980. <laughs> well, given that they were all working class lads, uh, which Paul goes to great lengths mm. to kind of go on about, it, it's an interesting thing that they were portraying themselves as, as an alternative. Yeah, they wore Union Jack. Yeah, but that's a mod thing. That's the who, you know, like that's part of that image. Yeah, but, but their image wasn't, wasn't as mod as it became. When they first started, they had short hair, ties but pulled down and kind of that it was a kind of a punk new wave look that was wasn't mm. that unusual the mod thing didn't really kick in properly until a bit later when yeah, they yeah. when they kind of felt more comfortable i suppose mm. doing it okay but, i mean the mod revival was off the back of the jam the second yeah. mod revival mm. was really mm. down to them mm. once punk sort of had passed a little bit you had your scar and mod things happening, yeah. and that was really largely down to the chance. Well, in terms of just harking back for a moment to the political thing, Woking had been, and I think still is, a conservative seat in the British Parliament from 1950 onwards. So he wasn't being a rebel by saying he was conservative. You know, he was actually, mm. you know, I mean, I think they were joking. Yeah. As you say, they were just being a bit provocative because they were sick of the kind of orthodoxy, yeah. the punk orthodoxy. Mm. It wouldn't have been particularly rebellious for him to have voted conservative in a conservative stronghold. <laughs> as uh, Woking was. Mm. But back to the Parkers. The mod thing for me becomes more of an issue with 1978's all mod cons. Mm. Which came out in November 78. Yeah. Reached yeah. number six. And that's a landmark album, but he had been listening to the Kinks mm. in a big way mm. for this album. So musically, you know, that era... He's harking back to that era, but the look of everything sort of changed a little bit then too. This album is, to me, is when I got really interested in them. Mm. I liked some of the previous stuff, but I just remember hearing, I think it was in, Living in England when Down in the Tube Station at Midnight came out, and it was um, such a great, catchy song, but had that punk energy and spirit, but it actually had a story, it had something yeah, to yeah. say. And uh, I feel like on that album there's so many fantastic songs. It's really the starting point for me. Mm. Mm. Speaking of the Kinks connection, they released David Watts, mm. which well, is an old Kinks song. It's Kinks cover, yeah. Mm. Uh, as their first single before the album that had A-Bomb and Wardour Street on the other side. Have you heard the Kinks version I have not. of David Watts? It's pretty much identical. <laughs> It was it was about a real person. He was a promoter, music promoter, who apparently was gay. So a lot of the kind of lyrics are in jokes about all the girls want to be with David Watts, uh-huh. and he's 
you know, captain of the football team and all this sort of stuff. But he is yeah, so yeah. gay and fancy free is right, one of the yeah. lyrics. <laughs> uh, but whereas A-Bomb in Wardour, Wardour Street is about the increasing amount of violence at punk gigs, mm. which Paul was talking about, like every gig you played, there was this ruck in the front of the stage and he was getting really, really sick and tired of it and just this heavy, heavy atmosphere that maybe meant he was trying to leave a little bit of that behind as well. What's he saying there was an A-bomb in Wardour Street or just a bomb in Wardour Street? <laughs> mm. And the song features one of the most legendary instruments in rock and roll, the woodblock, doesn't it? Really? It's, it's not a cowbell? It's a woodblock, is it? Woodblock or cowbell? I don't know. We'll have to mm. leave that to Graham. I will feature that as well. Graham will isolate. To, feel free to edit out my contribution to A-bomb in Wardour Street. A quick note to the listeners, it is actually a cowbell, not a woodblock. We, we should probably set the scene for the recording of all mod cons in that Chris Parry had rejected basically like a whole bunch of demos that they'd recorded. It sounds as if they'd almost recorded an entire album mm-hmm. and yeah, presented it to Polydor and Polydor said, There's sorry, not it's good terrible. enough. There's not enough good songs and here. Yeah, Go so back. it was a real crisis of confidence mm. for the band. I think he'd lost his confidence because Paul Weller, sorry, he'd lost his confidence because the second album didn't do as well. They'd mm. kind of peaked and, and felt like maybe maybe this is it for us. Yeah, Have we got yeah. anything else? And not only did he come back, but he came back with, with a far better album full of far better songs. Mm. Mm. The next single, and I think this came out just before the album, was down in the tube station at midnight. And uh, I think this is a real turning point for the band because this really was the jam, I think, finding their sound. Because mm. when I listen to this song, I don't think of the 60s. I don't think of no. anything that came before. It's really a triumph of arrangements, just what they did. There's Bruce Fockton's playing this fast multi-note bass line. <laughs> Uh, Rick Buckler's playing the fast hi-hat that's, I guess, meant to replicate a train, I think. And Paul Weller's playing a few sparse chords here and there. And then the second verse kicks in and Bruce starts playing this ascending bass line, so it builds towards the chorus. And then all of a sudden you're in the middle of the chorus, it kind of almost sneaks in there, and then Bruce sings this whoa, 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 whoa bit. Which, um, which is probably the only real pop song in part of the song. kind of reminiscent. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And I just think it's a truly unique single. Fumble for change Pull out the queen Smiling big island But the lyrics are great. It's a real yeah. story. That's it's a great story too. Compared yeah. to the other stuff that they'd done that anybody else was doing, mm. October 78, you're still kind of in the middle of punk in many mm. ways. And you've got like this narrative about this guy's night. Mm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, it's fantastic. Yeah. But it truly was, yeah. It's one of my favourite songs of theirs. I remember seeing it on top of the Pops and it was probably my first exposure to them, like the full package. I'd seen some of the albums and heard some of the songs, but this was like, wow, it really got my attention. Paul Willis says that he was listening a lot to the Kinks at that time and mm. the Ray Davies kind of storytelling, storytelling yeah. um, creating characters, that kind of thing. And that was not a very punk thing to do, I don't think. Like, Certainly as in, not to admit to. No, no, that's right. It is the story of someone, an office worker, I guess, heading home to have a curry and a Mm. glass of wine with his missus and being set upon by thugs. And it's just really kind of evocative in the kind of details, like the uh, smell of leather, Mm. which is what the kind of shoe hitting his face, I guess. And just those kind of things. And it's so... Well, and as I asked you earlier... Just exactly how many right-wing meetings is too many, <laughs> according to these lyrics. I like how he says that. Like, like one is okay, but yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe yeah. not three. Yeah, no, no, that's right. <laughs> um, I do have a question about these lyrics, though, for you guys. In the song, he says, I have a little money and a takeaway curry. I'm on my way home to my wife. She'll be lining up the cutlery. You know she's expecting me, polishing the glasses and pulling out the cork. If he's bringing dinner home for his wife, why is it midnight? And also, he's already got a bottle of wine and she's opening one. Mm. So what's going on there? Oh, that's right. I reckon he got the curry early on in the night and he snuck away for a couple of cheeky beers. Mm. And all of a sudden it's midnight. And he's forgotten. He's forgotten. <laughs> I reckon his wife is going to be furious when it's he gets It's going to be home. a pretty cold curry. Mm. <laughs> I think well, he says, you know, she's waiting for me. Like, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, she certainly is. The role Are you... <laughs> But I'm not sure how many places you could get a takeaway curry at a quarter to 12. <laughs> that's, that's well, this right, is yeah. London. What would the shift working situation like? Well, this is it. People <laughs> doing late shift. If he's a shift worker, then fine, I understand that. But his wife's not going to be waiting for him to get home to have dinner. Maybe they've just gotten married, Graham, and things are fresh. Do you remember <laughs> what that was like? 
You know, when your yeah. wife wanted to see you. <laughs> Wait up for you. It's yeah. Well, look, I think we're we're talking a little bit about us at this point. Yeah. <laughs> let's let's give Paul the benefit of some poetic license okay. for mm, the track. No, that's right. Um, I'd like to talk about some of the other songs. Like English Rose is yeah, such a right. departure yeah. from the previous albums. Again, it, no, it's, it's, it's a beautiful love. It was love so anti punk, like it yeah, was absolutely. It's a love song, mm. and yeah. I don't, and it wasn't listed on the the track listing for the album because I think he was embarrassed about having it on there. Mm. But it, it's a great track. No And it shows the development of his songwriting. Yeah. From the previous album to this, to me, is, is huge in, in the way that I will often argue about third albums mm. as, as Quantum Leaps. And I really think there's a big, big gap between this and the previous two. The previous two sound like a covers band, some young kids mm. finding their feet. Mm. But this is like, bang, he's grown up big time in, in the year between those two albums. If I can interject before we move on from English Rose, as you guys know, I'm not much of a guitarist. But the one and only guitar song I have ever learned was English Rose. Really? It's pretty simple, but, you know, I could probably play it for you right now. And, Graham, you've learnt it in recent days, so you could pick up a guitar. <laughs> and... I'm the only one out of the three of us that hasn't learnt it. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that's right. I, I feel but, terrible. Um, it was my brother taught me how to play English Rose and he also taught a friend of his who, who was a big Don McLean fan and who was an acoustic guitarist who used to play around town in Melbourne. Mm. Uh, my brother was, was really excited to go and see his friend play at the Spaghetti Tree or something, uh, an inner city acoustic... Only in Melbourne would the venue be called the Spaghetti Tree. If I'm, if I'm getting the name <laughs> right. I didn't go to a lot of acoustic guitar venues. But, but uh, yeah, so he went to see his friend, have this his set list interspersed by, you know, a uh, post-punk song, and his friend got up on stage and said, this is English Rose by The Clash. Oh. <laughs> oh. And... So, yeah. Killed his credibility, stone mm. dead. <laughs> yeah, hey, um, on that note, I also would like to point out that even though Paul was writing soft ballad love songs that year, they were still hard enough to get into a brawl in uh, the Queen's Hotel in Leeds with the Australian rugby league team, <laughs> the Kangaroos. Really? Yeah. Really? <laughs> they got into a full-scale punch-up with several members of the Kangaroos who are, yeah, the National Rugby yeah, League yeah, Team yeah. for Australia in November 78. So apparently uh, he Paul Weller glassed this guy and then the surrounding Kangaroos, as they're called, um, mm. dived in to um, sort of support their man and it turned into a kerfuffle and um, I think they might have been both staying in the same hotel and the, um, the uh, NRL players said, look, if that band is still here, in the morning, I can't guarantee their safety. <laughs> That's great. So they quietly disappeared. Well, Paul was charged and actually went to court over oh, this. Yeah, so wow. there you are. So they're still writing. Wow, that's excellent. You know, uh, what is it? Sweet and tender hooligan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> As yeah. he was. Um, to Be Someone is also a great song. Mm, so. mm. Great. It's a great album well, from start to finish. To be, to be Someone, I like too, but I think there's some dodgy lyrics in there. And really? I, I have a problem with, uh, with Paul Weller's insistence and... Joe Jackson is guilty of this He's as well. He's not going to end a sentence with a, pro- a preposition, is he? <laughs> Maybe a proposition. Yes, well, I, <laughs> yeah. I hate that as well. But um, it, they both had this habit of trying to get too many lyrics in a line yeah. and it didn't scan very well. And even the line like, and the bread I spend is like my fame, it's quickly diminished. I mean, it, it's not poetic either. Mm. So um, It's all about the rhythm though. It's not, it's mm. not about whether it rhymes or not, according to Paul Weller. Yeah, yeah well, but sometimes the rhythm is awkward as much. I guess maybe I'm throwing this in here because I don't want you guys <laughs> to think that I just love the band no, and no, everything no. they did. There, no, were a, there were a couple of things. That's <laughs> a searing yes criticism, man. Graham. Mm, <laughs> searing. You'll be burning your records tonight. <laughs> <laughs> also, In the Crowd um, yes. was inspired by the Clash song Lost in the Supermarket. I fall into a trust at the supermarket The night blows me along as the cash falling cares I'm If you, if you listen to that and uh, you can actually sing in the crowd along with it, it's... Um, well, he was a big Clash similar. fan. Mm-hmm. Paul Weller was a big, big fan of the band and was really disappointed when they kind of sold out and mm-hmm. went to America. You know, he was talking about, you know, one minute they're singing about I'm so bored in the USA, the next minute they're playing stadiums in America. Because yeah. <laughs> he's such a fanatic about authenticity. Yeah. There's a story about when he met Pete Townsend from The Who and they didn't really click at all. He was a big hero 
to Paul yeah, Weller. Yeah. And, and basically afterwards, Townsend said, I've never met anybody that was more obsessed with being authentic and, you know, everything to be real. It was yeah, like, yeah. I mean, he would have been 40 when Paul Weller was maybe 21, yeah, 22. Yeah. Mm. And um, they just didn't understand each other at all. And he yeah, wanted to, yeah. he said to Paul, you should try and break into America. You know, this is the next step for the band. And he's like, no, I don't want to do that. <laughs> well, it's understand. interesting you said that because they did try a couple of times. Mm. I don't know that they ever really did try. I mean, they went. One of the f- tours yeah. they were on in America was supporting the Blue Oyster Cult. No, I mean, <laughs> you're not really taking it seriously when when you're doing that. I saw an interview with them on one of these Good Morning Chicago type shows in America yeah, in 1980. Yeah, yeah. Like this so rubbish we this have here, like the sunrise or something like that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. with these two Muppets interviewing the band, mm. and it was just so embarrassing. And like they didn't want to be there, and they were just not interested. But they were like, "So yeah, what? Yeah. What are you? You guys are not punk, you know? You're like a lot of these punk bands are like anti-life, and you know they got orange hair and safety pins. You know, you're quite nicely dressed, you know. Yeah, yeah they just yeah. didn't understand what they were about, and they yeah. were just like not interested. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in nineteen, right. we're getting a little bit ahead here, but in nineteen eighty, they played Strange Town and Heatwave on American Bandstand. And they were kind of miming, but I remember looking at it thinking that they're never going to make it in America. Yeah. They're too too English. Yeah. They really and they celebrate that. I mean, even in Europe, they didn't really ever yeah. break through. They're just so insistent on keeping that. Mm. I mean, somebody described mm. them as as a, like a, a huge national band. Like a, yeah, he's absolutely. a big national star, not an international star. Yeah, yeah. Huge in England, but we'll yeah. get to how big they got later. Yeah, yeah. Um, Getting back to in the crowd. Yes. The lyrics um, of? No, actually, the uh, the sound. My pet peeve about the jam, if I have one, is their insistence that nothing happened in music after December 1966, I think, hmm. um, with the release, I'm not sure that, that the album's actually re- released this month, but uh, Revolver by the Beatles. Hmm. And uh, In the Crowd features backwards guitar. so many things you can add so many fresh ideas that were beginning to be out there in 1978 and what the jam said not for the first time not for the last time actually for the first time but not for the last time is let's steal something from the revolver album Mm. the beatles stumbled upon the backwards guitar sound when a tape machine was was playing backwards and they used it for the first time on Revolver. The Jam have already been accused by everyone of being 60s revivalists. Mm. So what's their reaction except to completely confirm that it's the case? It's like Gary Glitter never happened. <laughs> well, they were very much anti-synthesizer too. Mm, I, remember, yeah. I remember seeing something where we were not going to have any synthesizers or any of that rubbish. And also they didn't like glam, all of that early 70s stuff they hated. It did make their musical palette a bit limited. Whenever you look them up or see anything, they're, they're most often described as a revivalist band mm. or a mod band. So no one's calling them progressive. Mm. And the reason we're talking about them is, I guess, that they came out of punk and they had a kind of an interesting journey Mm. and they fit the timeline really nicely as well. And I think they're worth talking about, but, yeah, you're right, there are other bands out there that developed in leaps and bounds on from their starting point. I don't think you could say the jam ever really did that. They certainly needed the songs to be really good. They needed the melodies to be great, the lyrics to be memorable, and fortunately... For the jam, they were all of that. Certainly the extra singles and stuff were as well. Like Strange Town, as you were just saying, Graham, non-album single is great. I also like the other one, which was When You're Young. And they're both top 20 hits. Yeah, so that's right. Were... So, hey, what do we know? <laughs> so <laughs> this continues the trend of them having a cover on every album to date, correct? I think so. Yes. yes. Well, David Watts being a Kinks cover. Mm. Yeah, yeah. The turning point. We agree on that, though. The songs are mm. far superior to anything he'd done. Mm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. They, they went ahead of leaps and bounds mm. on all mod cons, I think. And then it was time for Setting Sun. <laughs> Concept album, well, the idea was originally conceived yeah. as a yes. concept album. I only just recently found out about that. Like, this is my favourite 
jam album, but um, I always just thought that it was like a, a war album. Like he, he well, that was the concept. References. No, mm. but the, the actual original concept was three school friends who go off to war and come back very different from each other. Mm. And I thought that was a much more mm. interesting concept than just war is bad, love is No, no, is good, but that so. was the idea. The yeah, cover yeah. sort of is a, is a monument or an old war mm. monument. And, but he abandoned the concept sort of halfway through. I mean, yeah. Girl on the Phone, the first track on the album, has nothing to do with That's about him all of a sudden becoming popular, I think. <laughs> I mean, this came out, what, November 79, so a year on from the previous album. So he's had plenty of time to kind of come up yeah, with this yeah. concept, yeah. but then doesn't really follow it through. I mean, there's some songs on there that obviously Eden Rifles and other things, maybe. And oh, there's, a, there's a track on there, actually, that does reference, you know, the, the three friends being different. For little me. Boy Soldiers. Yeah, yeah, Little Boy Soldiers, that's it, yeah. Um, uh, I'd probably agree with you that if, if it's not my favourite album that's close to it, I'm probably still going to go for All Mod Cons, but it was more of a challenging album and probably more of an ambitious album. Mm. Still got to number four. It was a huge success in England. Patrick, I mean, I'm impressed that you were aware of the jam the previous year to the degree of learning one of their songs. Yeah. I don't see you as a big jam no, person. No, I had um, All Mod Cons and Setting Suns on cassettes. I was very familiar with them. But I also, in my own kind of reactionary way, you know, thought of them as being an uninteresting band that wasn't kind of pushing the boundaries the way that a lot of other bands who I loved were. I mean, for instance, around about the time that Setting Suns came out, Within a few weeks before or after, uh, Regatta de Blanc came out, Metal Box, Public Image, uh, Gary Newman's Pleasure Principle. So there were a lot of different directions that music could go in. Mm. And the jam said, no, we're we are fine as we are. Thanks very much. Yeah. <laughs> Even though there are some, I think, some really good songs on Setting Suns, but it's just a little bit disappointing for me that they could have been doing more interesting stuff and I think later on they were but around about now was the time when the technology was becoming you know a lot more freely available like cheaper synthesizers i know they hated synths but you know there was still an option and uh there were no drum machines on this album no 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 that's right never gonna happen and uh yeah in terms of the number of channels available for overdubs to kind of see what you can do well they were still using the same producer too maybe that had something to do with it they weren't interested now three albums four albums in and they're still using the same producer. So there was no kind of, we're going to throw this out and try something different. No, Like no, a lot right. of other bands were doing. And, I mean, they loved the art of songwriting and they were really interested in that and, you know, they obviously still felt that there was a lot that they could examine in terms of, you know, your uh, kinks-ish storytelling. Mm-hmm. And, and Yeah, I think that's what, what he was interested in doing. Mm. Melody and, 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 melody and storytelling. Well, and, and yeah. a bit of social commentary. I mean, Eden yeah, Rifles is, is about, you know, apparently he saw some footage of, you know, the right to strike or right to work marches in England at the time going down the street and a bunch of private school kids yeah, kind of mocking yeah. them and making fun of them as they went past. And, yeah. and so the song Eden Rifles came out of that. And the yeah. lyrics, obviously, are, yeah. are great lyrics. And he was a bit of a social commentator. That, that was one of my favourite lyrics of his, actually, Eden Rifles. Well, he was—he ended up being a bit of a spokesman for a lot of these causes, yeah, yeah, and you know, right. for the for the working class. Yeah. Even though he says he doesn't didn't want that, didn't but he ended it, up yeah. being. I mean, I remember as you probably do reading the music papers, and you know, there was him, there was John Lydon, there was some real kind of iconic mm. figureheads who basically would get the front cover and would be interviewed at length about anything they felt like talking yeah, about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and he could really go on. He was yeah. he was pretty mouthy and he could often be really annoying. <laughs> but you know, the sentiments <laughs> were there yeah, were, yeah. were good, but he was extremely self righteous. Yeah. <laughs> For a but, rock star. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is what he was. Yeah. Eaton Rifles features some really nifty lines and mm. he was really the lyrics he wrote were really clever and mm. in a way he perhaps should never have done interviews because the lyrics kind of yeah. captured things really well. So for instance, uh Eaton Rifles, um all that rugby puts hairs on your chest. What chance have you got against a tie and a crest? Mm. That kind of sums up a lot about the class struggle and the idea of these kids from Eton who play their silly war games and so on, jeering at the plebs mm. marching past. Like, that's pretty well, powerful. Well, one of the other yeah. lyrics I love is that we were no match for their untamed wit. Mm. <laughs> but though some of the boys said they'd be back next, next week. week yeah. Have another go. Yeah, yeah. And that's a great song. It's, it's a great album. I mean, it, it really is. It's a short album and it's got another cover on it, which was Heatwave. I think I've explained to you guys before that during 1980, when I was a swimming pool attendant, 
I yes. love this period. I, I this is my favourite post-punk era. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is the, the swimming pool era. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There were two albums I had in the car. There was um, The Police's Zenyatta Wandata and there was this album, Setting Suns. When I went back and listened to it now, it brought back floods of memories chlorine. of the smell of chlorine the smell of chlorine what, yeah. did you wear one of those little caps those things you tie under your chin yeah, that was more wear. lifesavers I think oh. I, I wasn't saving anyone's life at this point really you're, t- you're trying to tell me swimming pool attendant isn't lifesaving work well it, it's well <laughs> to just just think for a moment about the amount of stress that I was under as a swimming pool attendant at, at the time you know there's, there's what time uh, did the pool open like midday Actually, no, it was really early. Was it? Yeah. So you had to get up early. I had to get up very early. Yeah. But yeah, this album kind of got me through. Got you through difficult times. Got me times. through this difficult time. Yeah. I think Thatcher was closing all the swimming pools at the time. <laughs> in Australia. In, in Australia. Yeah. <laughs> and her, uh, her and reach it was incredible. <laughs> we were just marching and. Uh, <laughs> the right to swim movement had started. Here we go again. It's Monday at last. He's heading for the Uh, Smithers Jones. Yeah, great track. The orchestration. Um, Social commentary. Really good. Yeah. Little Again, a little bit of the uh, Eleanor Rigby's. The, yeah, uh, oh, it's, it's, yeah. it's Beatles everywhere, but he makes yeah. no bones about it. No, that. no, when, that's right. When, that's you, when right. you see interviews with him now, he'll say, you know, tell us about albums, you know, whatever that have influenced him. He's basically the Beatles and they have to sort of steer him away from the Beatles. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, it was good enough for Oasis. It's, you know, good enough for Paul Weller. Yeah. Um, as, as far as Heatwave goes, I, I have to say I prefer the Phil Collins cover from 2010, but... Or Linda I think Ronstadt. most people think Linda it's Ronstadt a bit—it's really a bit throwaway. And why do they spoil the album with it? Yeah, Even the reviews yeah. at the time said, but they didn't have enough songs. Yeah. I think it's only <laughs> what eight or nine songs I, on the I, album. I, I don't agree. You don't agree. I will not have a word said against this album. <laughs> okay. No, I just think they didn't need that cover. They could have. He could have done something. Well, they could have put yeah. "Going Underground" on it, for example, which was the non-album single from a couple of months later. Yeah, yeah, that's it's a great track. Don't, don't tell know. me they didn't have that ready when it came out. You know, three months later. <laughs> Great album, I think we. Well, we all more or less in agreement with that one. I if, quite like it. You quite like yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Patrick that's big. Quite likes <laughs> that's big from from you. <laughs> um, so yeah, going underground was the first number one. March 1980. Yes, and it was the first single to debut at number one since Slade in 1973. Oh, wow, that's big, big platform boots to fill. Mama, we're all crazy now. Three E's? Yeah, Mm. well, well, Slade didn't have spell check at that point. (laughs) No, they were too busy with other things. (laughs) Yeah, number one. Are you fans of the song Going Underground? Yeah. Love it. It strikes me as a bit of a Commodore Garden jam song. I quite like it, but it doesn't have a straight in at number one sort of feeling. To I me. like the verse better than the chorus. I like the way the bass is working with what he's doing in the verse. I think it's great. It's an odd rhythm. So. Yeah, it is a bit strange. I think they were just getting to the point now where whatever they did was going to be yeah, huge. Yeah. I mean, if you didn't live in England at the time where you were not English, and none of us are, well, you are technically, Patrick. <laughs> a little bit, technically. Yes. You can't understand how big the jam were. They were mm. like, I don't know, in Australia, you'd be your midnight oil, your cold chisels, or something like that. They were just huge, and they're a huge part of the fabric of the society of youth there from a certain age point, you know. Like they were they the really, journey and the sticks. Well, there you of, go. Uh, maybe, yeah, the maybe UK. the Eagles. Mm. But they were just such a huge band, huge influence on the culture there, like the clothing, mm. the music, everything that they did, Paul Weller mm. being a bit of an icon. So, and yeah, it doesn't surprise me at all that it went in at number one in 1980. As was mentioned in the Jam documentary from 2015, which was called... About the Young Idea. Yeah, lyric yeah. from in the, in the City, from I in think. In the City, yeah. yeah. And as a couple of people said in that documentary, the Jam's failure to make waves outside of the UK meant that they felt like our band as English people or as, as British people. And there was a real kind of local quality because they were singing about tube stations and they were singing about Wardour Street in Soho in the West End. And it was all very specific. And, and in a and very English yeah, accent. Smithers Jones, yeah. you know, as a very localised kind of names mm. and places. So I can certainly see why, and given 
Paul Weller in particular, his authenticity as a, like a 21, 22-year-old spokesman, you know, the mod father spokesperson for a generation, you know, whether he embraced that role or not, it's really not surprising that they became the it band of the late 70s and early 80s in terms of more or less every single started going to number one or certainly top five or top ten. Should we move on? To sound effects. Mm. A year later again, November yeah. 1980. So yeah, they're knocking they them out every year, but giving themselves a bit of time and playing relentlessly as well, playing a lot of gigs. This was the album that was inspired by Revolver, apparently. Well, mm. openly, when you yeah. when you pinch the bass line from Taxman. The, the whole start, song, was more it? or less. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's not even a question. I don't know how they got away with it. Yeah. It's, it's not even... Well, I think it was an homage. So they were listening to the start of Revolver, because Taxman's the opening track, Mm. and they thought, start of Revolver. (laughs) Can we call this track Revolver? Let's just call it Start. (laughs) Revolver is too close, Mm. but Start we can just... you know what... When I heard this song, I'd never heard that song. Oh, I'd never heard Taxman by the right. Beatles. So I just thought, what a killer bass line. And, then, you know, at some point or another it was pointed out. And I was like, oh, right, <laughs> yeah. okay. Yeah, you know, yeah. Don't forget, this is whatever it is 14 years later or something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a lifetime when you're when yeah, you're absolutely. 15. Yeah. You know, it's it's no big deal. So I was like, well, good on them. I mean, it's a great track and a great um, <laughs> it's a great single. Mm. I think it went, did go into number one as well. Yeah. I mean, who's, who's going to yeah. argue? Did, did Taxman go to number one? I no. don't know. <laughs> it wasn't even a single, probably. <laughs> Nothing you might The be Beatles, right. what have I ever done? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, on the off chance you were wondering whether it was inspired by the Beatles, check out the John Lennon glasses being worn by Weller yes. in the film clip. But I think as a song, it stands up. Like, it's a rip-off in, in certain respects, but mm. it does kind of move away from Taxman in terms of the yeah, chorus well, or, the, you know, as, as the song evolves. When mm. I first heard it, I just thought it was really odd. I, I, I thought, what an unusual choice for a single. There are other songs on the album that are more obvious singles. So well, they only, they only released two singles from this, didn't they? Was it That's Entertainment? That's Entertainment wasn't released locally in the UK. It was just an import single as well, which is why it only got to, what, number 21 or something? 21, oh, really? Yeah. I think so. It's a great song. I liked it so much that in my um, year 11, I think it was year 11, English exams, I used it as my own. I, I wrote it as my, a poem. I, I submitted it as a poem, the so lyrics from start Paul to Weller finish. Paul Weller will be contacting you. Yeah. That, that and a Joy Division will track. the school authorities of yeah. Brisbane, Queensland. Yeah, so you'll be retracting that 98% <laughs> and taking it back from me. Yeah, yeah, no, I just thought it was a great song and I thought it was poetry, so I just um, put it in. I was pretty confident my high school teacher wouldn't know the jam. Did the teacher go... Um, Two lovers missing the tranquility of solitude. Pretentious. Yes. Yeah, but I was 16, so, you know, it was perfect. So, yeah, yeah, and I got top marks. Thanks, Paul. Wow, that's brilliant. (laughs) Why didn't I think of doing that? One interesting thing about the song That's Entertainment, which is lost a little bit in the sands of time, is the title was inspired by a film called That's Entertainment, which is a a 1974 Hollywood film, which was a compilation of great dance routines. Musicals. From the 19... Yeah, uh, I remember From from the great... I think it might have been MGM, but the kind of great Hollywood musical. So it was Mm. just the best of the dance routines. And so it was a specifically nostalgic, kind of very cosy, previous generation kind of entertainment. So Mm. for Paul Weller to appropriate that idea and kind of place it into like a pretty harsh context or like a... This is Thatcher's Britain today kind of thing, yeah. Mm. Yeah, and just waiting for your holidays and that's all you're doing, you know, that's all you've got apart from, you know, you don't even have the tranquility of solitude. Exactly. (laughs) So that was really cleverly done and it's a hell of a song. Nothing much happens in it musically but it's perfect. No, it's just just the two... It really, the lyrics are fantastic. Once again, it's it's a Mm. narrative sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. I liked it so much I claimed it as my own. (laughs) (laughs) I would have to say that the... The sonic triptych, if I, if I might use that term, of uh, Set the House Ablaze, followed by Start, followed by That's Entertainment, is as good as the jam ever got. 
and and extraordinary um, musical diversity for the jam as well because there's the acousticness uh, um, in reverse order, the kind of acoustic beauty set against the grim lyric of That's Entertainment. Mm. Start with all the qualities that, that, that we talked about about Start and set, set the house ablaze, which is quite post-punk actually. And they talked about being influenced to a certain extent by Gang of Four and Joy Division and Wire around that time. Did they? Mm. And you can see little hints of that, particularly in the uh, guitar line. And, yeah, for me, this is probably my favourite jam album because they were trying to stretch themselves yeah, about as far as they about as far as they could, themselves. and once yeah. again the same producer, so they didn't sort of stray from the path of, of what the jam were about, yeah, yeah. which is why yeah. I think they were so successful. We talk about other bands, and we say, well, if they just kept releasing the same album year yeah, after yeah. year, they would have gotten bigger and bigger, rather than say what the Stranglers did, trying to stretch themselves and go into weird areas. Yeah, the yeah. jam never really changed; they just kind of finessed it a little bit and just got huger every time they released an album, mm, to yeah. the point where Paul Weller got bored with it. Yeah, but yeah. but. They yeah, there's there's a progression there, but probably of all the bands that we've spoken about, maybe Echo and the Bunnymen and the Jam, you yeah. can draw a line through all of their albums and you can kind of maybe move them around and there's not too much difference. Yeah, although they did lose fans around about this time, like the, the kind of hardcore mod fans, because this was a bit weird and a bit arty maybe in mm. some ways. I mean, that was exacerbated by the following album, but mm. yeah, Still? I think the Sea of Green Parkers, that was the audience that the jam were... Um, blokes. Were used to, yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. right. Was kind of um, dissipating or certainly evolving into a slightly different audience by this stage, I think. Still a number two album. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they were huge. Mm. Mm. Monday was a great song. Man in the Corner Shop had that sort of classic 12-string bird-style guitar. the harmonies are great. And Boy About Town, and uh, I noted here that the jam always had this, uh, on each album, they'd almost hide away, like a very traditional classic pop song style of song, and uh, I think Boy About Town is one of those. On uh, Setting Suns, there were Saturday's Kids, and on All Mod Combs, there was a song called It's Too Bad. But just very short, sharp, mm. very radio-friendly songs that were never released as singles. And um, I thought that was quite interesting because I think that's what made the jam a little bit more interesting than the other mod bands. I think it was the Jags and Secret Affair and the Lambrettas. The Merton Parkers. Parkers. Don't leave them out. <laughs> sorry, sorry, Merton Parkers. They would have recorded songs like the ones I just mentioned, but to the jam's credit, they went with, you know, Down in the Tube Station at Midnight and mm. uh, just, just songs that weren't obvious singles, but they were still good and interesting, but yeah. there was still a lot more to them. So, yeah, there's always this little nugget of gold near the end of the album. Speaking of which, Scrape Away, the last song mm. on the album, is, is a really interesting track and yeah, a really yeah. interesting end and wasn't, a, a, no, no cover versions on this album. For the first yeah, time, yeah. As well. <laughs> apart from start, yeah, which <laughs> wasn't credited as a cover version, but yeah, yeah. I, I think it's a great album. I, I wouldn't disagree with you that it's their best, but I suppose I'm being nostalgic for all mod cons and setting suns. It was Paul Weller's favourite. Anyway. Oh, there yeah, we are. Yeah, there yeah. we are. Well, who are we yeah. to argue with, Paul? Yeah. Well, um, but scrape away is just about their most post-punk sounding yeah, song. Yeah, because it's it, got that kind of dubby sort of drum beat and the jagged guitar lines. Even and the titles, it sounds post-punk. Yeah, yeah, and it is, as you say, just slightly peculiar and mm. kind of interesting. But they still persisted with a couple of non-album um, singles as well. <laughs> they can't, couldn't help themselves. <laughs> no. And I guess while they're having hits with them, which were Funeral Pyre and uh, Absolute Beginners. Both went to number four. I mean, yeah. it's just like mm. they could do no wrong at this mm. point. I and Funeral Pyre wasn't a commercial song at all. No, mm. no, no, not at quite all. Quite an aggressive sounding song, but it was good. I liked it. Yeah. But yeah, not an obvious single. No, I wouldn't have thought either of them were, to be honest. Which I, brings us to The Gift. Which just brings us to the final um, parting album, The Gift. March 1982. Sort of more of a soul-inspired album. Well, I think I this is the beginning of the end, isn't it, really? You can hear where Paul Weller wants to go. Yeah, Debuted yeah, at number good. one or went to number one anyway. Yep, yep. Um, had some cracking singles on it. Ah, well, certainly Town Called Malice is the one most people would know. 
mm-hmm. uh, which which is a great song and a, and a very much influenced by um, Motown. Yeah, it has uh, an approximation of the "You Can't Hurry Love" baseline. But they actually have got in a different producer for this one, so I don't know, Peter Wilson, whether you can tell too much sonically about that. Mm. Um, I'm open to argument on that. But. Well, it's certainly quite a rich sound compared to everything apart from sound effects, perhaps. The optimism is what strikes me about the gift, that Paul Weller's image had been of this kind of extremely dour, extremely serious mm. kind of young man. But he does kind of lighten up quite obviously, I think, on this album, the kind of Motown sounds and, and so on. And on um, Town Called Malice, for instance, there's a line, well, a few lines, playground kids and creaking swings lost laughter in the breeze. I could go on for hours and I probably will but I'd sooner put some joy back in this town called Malice. And just putting some joy back is not a very Paul Weller no, kind no, of idea. No, I hadn't been to that point, that's for sure. No, and the song is pretty gritty, you know, because it's, will I cut down on beer or the kids' new gear? It's a big decision in a town called Malice. And, you know, like it's proper, you know, working class concerns. It's a little bit like that's entertainment in, in mm. some respects. But it's so jaunty, it's absolutely irresistible as a pop song. And, mm. you know, he is trying to be optimistic. He, Weller has described it as an optimistic album. And you can see Style Council creeping up uh, in his peripheral vision. Yeah. Well, I was going to say that song, Precious. is a real departure is kind Mm. of a dance song like it's a funky kind of thing and you just you know even hearing it now I had to remind myself that it actually was on a jam album yeah yeah. because they've never done anything like that before nothing you could you could sort of describe as funky like that no no that's right so maybe yeah he was definitely had an eye on the horizon I'd say Mm. Um, the band had been together well I suppose you could you could say if you say back to 72 you could say 10 years or thereabouts but um, so he was kind of looking for the exit, I suppose. I also think Ghosts is a great song. Yeah. I've and that's Ghosts. a really kind of bit of a departure as well. Mm. Yeah. Mm. There's some really good moments on this and it's yeah. a great final album. The album was released, what did we say, March 82. March 82. When did he announce the breakup of the band? I know that they were still touring the like, album and people knew they were breaking up. It was like August 82. Uh-huh. Right, so they were doing this tour and fans were coming up to them and saying, why are you breaking up now? Why yeah, is this yeah. ending? And and Bruce and, and Rick are going, I don't know. Yeah, I, don't yeah. know. I, I really have no idea. You'd have to ask Paul. I've got written down here that uh, the last two singles, Beat Surrender, was a good indication of where Paul Weller was about to go with the Style Council mm. and The Bitterest Pill is a good indication of how Bruce and Rick were feeling at the time. Yes. Yeah. And so, t- yeah. two great and singles. You, Graham, though, and too. you. And you, because you, you, you never got over it. No, that's right. <laughs> well, yeah. we were talking, Graham and I, and he was like, you know, I still think it's a terrible thing that Paul Weller did to these other two band members to sort of deprive them wow. of this this career. 37 years later, you can't let it go. I right? can't let it go. No. Well, that's probably why he lets them still play under the name of From the Jam, yeah, given yeah. that they're his songs. Yeah. Um, and he's okay with that. But um, it's an interesting thing that, yeah, they've kind of gone, well, what are we supposed to do now? <laughs> to me, it just seemed weird that... Um like, he should have just said, listen, I'm going to do the style cancel for a few years, even mm. if it was like five years, mm. and then I'll get the jam back together then. But he's always been about the new, if, which is weird for a yeah, revivalist for a kind of guy. <laughs> he's always been interested in what's going on and mm. what's next. Yeah. I think he's restless. I mean, he's got about 14 kids to six different women, so I don't <laughs> think he can contain himself in any way. Mm. If he wants to do something, he's just going to go and do it, you know? Yeah. He said something about breaking up the band was like breaking up with your missus. He goes, you just wake up one day and decide to do it. And I was like, well... That, that's great. You know, this is a guy who's been married three or four times or whatever yeah, it is. So he obviously mm. has no problem with pulling the plug on something yeah, and going, yeah. oh, I'm, I'm, I'm out of here. I really admire the fact that he doesn't seem to have had the slightest regret about it. I mean, no. it's really brutal for Rick and for Bruce. But just in terms of kind of artistic purity, I think... It is really admirable because he could easily have milked it for an album or two or three or four more. Oh. And I mean, even his dad, you know, the band's manager said, "Are you, are you, are you out of your mind?" Yeah, he was the manager the entire time for <laughs> yeah. all of this, and mm. like had seen it all. I admire that as well. And I mean, we're talking about going out at the top at the age of twenty-four. Yeah, 
Bitterest Pill got to number two. Beats are into number one. All of these records are just charting everywhere. And the record company is probably going, you know, you're killing us. You're going to leave the gold. You know, this is happening and you're going to just throw it all away. Mm. But good on him for doing yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. So I suppose the question needs to be asked as to where the band fits in with all our kind of ideas of post-punk and their importance in the greater scheme of things. And I guess for, for me, they never really meant that much. They were might just scrape into my top 50, maybe, I think. Wow, uh, your top 50, they just scrape into. Yeah. Well, that is harsh. But Is the, it the guitars? But, uh, well, uh, just <laughs> the, the... lack of synths? Lack of synthesizers. Yeah. The lack of creative... Um, development and, and just progression, sa- yeah, yeah, and sounding a lot like the '60s bands. From it's like, come on, that's all that's, that's gone. Done. Let's, it's let's, gone. Come let's, on, let's man. Let's try something a bit different, dudes. <laughs> yeah, no, no, uh, that, that's but, a fair call. But but listening to these six albums again in recent weeks, I've been really impressed by how many good songs. You said they were a great singles band right, recently, yeah. so maybe that's a fair call. Like the non-album singles, and like if you get a greatest hits album once again of their stuff. There's song after song after song yeah. on there, you know. You can't deny the quality of the mm. song. And the songs don't all sound the same as each other as well. No. So. But whether they're a, a, what you'd call a typical post-punk band is open to argument, I'd say. Mm. Probably not. There'd be people that would say they don't qualify. Yeah. And they'd certainly be one of the longer shots of the bands that we've selected. Graham, yeah. would you what's your what's your take? You're probably the biggest jam fan of the of the three of us. Well I was thinking about this um the other day, going through the post punk years and I think it was the same with you guys. We went from XTC to Joy Division to Bauhaus to Simple Minds. Yeah, we were constantly going from yeah. f- from band to band. But with me the the jam were like this constant I guess they, they popped their head up every now and then and, and everything they did with me was always worth a listen but it was never a great surprise um, like wow what a direction mm, they've taken I think there were a couple of singles like Tube Station that were a surprise to me but the jam were the jam and um, I, I've always thought that uh, they were always a, a reliable touchstone to keep coming back to. Whilst you, we were on the journey of going from all these disparate sounds of, uh, you know, goth to electronic music to scar or whatever. And I always went back to the jam and it was always good. Look, I agree with both of you. I think they're worth mentioning and talking about. But yeah, the progression wasn't there. They would, but they stayed true to themselves. Paul Well is an interesting, enigmatic uh, person, I, I always interested in what he's on about, even now, and, and what he thinks about things. But he, he's very pure in his vision, and for him to be in a band that was like this doesn't surprise me. It also doesn't surprise me that he ended it when he did to go off to do the Style Council and to try to do something different. But yeah, I, I'd agree with both of you. I, I think they're worth talking about. They're an interesting addition, sonically and, and in terms of production, and as a period where things were exciting and things were happening and they were doing their bit. 